This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Welcome to Nothing, Nothing Happens in a Small Town. So I was just laughing because my, my nutbag dog was, <laughs> I, you know, I left, I had gone to talk to my husband in the room that we he's in with my dog and I love him so much for keeping my dog entertained while Tara and I do the podcast because <laughs> otherwise... We have tried keeping yeah, Diablo just, in here. He just... Yeah. It doesn't work. He's just he's. <laughs> there just, was that day that he sounded like he was going to kill me. I yes. mean, I come over every time I come over here. The first thing I do is I set everything down I've got with me <laughs> and I sit on the floor so that dog can be entertained and stop barking like a madman. And it's not like he doesn't know Tara. She's over here over pre- yeah, pretty much pretty every often. yeah every week almost yeah. It's just, and he knew me before that. Yeah, and just whatever. He's just nuts. Little demon dog. <laughs> he's so cute. Well, oh, he's his so adorable. Thing, and I haven't told you about this. So oh, his no. latest thing is okay. So we have like this big giant food dish for him, where mm-hmm. it, you know it like feeds him. So yeah. timed. We, yeah. Well, it's not even timed. It's just he can oh, go and rele- eat yeah. whenever okay. he wants to, and he's he's good. He doesn't go and eat a ton of food, but all of a sudden he's like scared in the kitchen. He doesn't want to be in the kitchen, and he doesn't want to eat the food out of his food bowl. So we have to scoop it out and put it on the floor. <laughs> and when Rick is home, Rick has to go lay on the floor in the kitchen with him while he eats. I yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. This just sounds so crazy. Yes, doggy drama. <laughs> well, I mean, we went through for a while there. Um, when Rock, the first time we decided Roxy had gotten kind of skinny, we started feeding her some baby uh, kitten food, essentially. And I bought a bunch of different flavors and stuff. And it was the kitten food with salmon is like the only thing. The whole family of kitties decided was the acceptable so because you know you don't want to feed part of a can part it's just a pain in the ass but yeah Yeah. animals yeah yeah they are weird and feeding them on the floor and laying down there with him (laughs) and petting him oh i can just picture this rick you're you're a really good man to do that with a dog he's you know, and he swears he hates Dylan, but you know, then he does stuff like that, and, and you're, you're like, like uh-huh. uh-huh, you love him to death, <laughs> or maybe he'd like to love him to death. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not going to ask him that question. No, that's, I don't that's need a to not know. answer. Yeah, no. I mean, Sean, he is definitely a kitty daddy, but I am the cat mama. They all. The the other day, I sent you those pictures. I don't know what's up with my animals. I mean, they do tend to sit around me and stuff, and I am the one who's not at home all day. Yeah. So 
I come home and suddenly Sean's chopped liver. But the other day, it's like I had Nikki on one side, chicken across my lap, and then Cece also. And I'm like, oh, she's going to get her butt bit by Nikki. But somehow they all three were able to basically surround my lap on and to the side. And I was like, I'm being mugged. (laughs) Anyhow, animals. Yes. So this week we are doing part, part two, two of Velisca X murders. And so we'll do a little recap first. Um, in the early morning hours of June 10th, 1912, the Moore family, Josiah, Sarah, the, those are the parents, Herman, Catherine, Boyd, and Paul, along with two guests, Lena and Anna, Ina Stillinger, were brutally murdered in the Velisca axe murder house with they were murdered with in their house in their house with an x yeah (laughs) okay um clues so yes i mean this 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 whole thing with the bacon is gonna get me for the rest of my life i think and trigger warning (laughs) trigger warning as we yes so the clues were an axe lamp and a slab of bacon in the room with the Stillinger girls. Mm -hmm. Um, Sarah Moore being the only victim to be hit with the sharp end of the axe. None of the victims appeared to have woken during this brutal attack. How in the world is that possible? Mm -hmm. Um, Except maybe Lena. I mean, she was moved, but anyhow. Well, I'll get into that a little bit um, towards the end. Right. And the covered mirrors and windows. We talked about this. Was it a ritual? Was it religious? Because Mm -hmm. some religions, that's what you do when somebody dies. Right. Um, And Lena Stillinger, the the victim that had been moved and uh, wasn't actually assaulted sexually, however, was left in a very sexual pose. Right. And she had, they had removed her underwear garments so that was definitely a yeah so right now we're going to talk about the suspects um so the first one is ff jones he was a businessman and iowa state senator joe moore worked for him was a model employee but when he left he took a lot of business from jones including john deere Yeah, he he took a big account with him when he left. And I know that 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 had to be a huge big issue. Yeah, it was also known that Moore was having an affair with Jones's daughter in law. At the time when you had to make a phone call, you first connected to an operator, the operator would then connect the call and disconnect it when the phone call was completed. They listened in on these phone calls. And would hear Donna Jones either say, yes, come over, or he's home, don't come over. Oh, gotta love those operators. Who needs Alexa (laughs) when the (laughs) operators can tell the whole story of the town? That is kind of the interesting thing, reading through, like, the newspapers in, in... you know, right. 1912, the newspaper was our, the, the Facebook. I mean, right. it's like you saw, you know, Mrs. Moore was visiting so-and-so. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just... Well, and it's funny because, you know, like when I went back to Kiwani for Jenny's wedding, um, we ended up in the paper, or at least my car did, <laughs> because, <laughs> oh, look, you know, terrace... Uh, Nay, Lily Root, Tara Slifer came to town and she brought her little Lotus Elise, this British <laughs> car. What the heck is this? Yeah, I, was, I thought that was so old fashioned to end up in the police, in the, yeah. But again, newspaper. small towns. 
Um, so Albert Jones, FF's son and Donna's husband, was of mod- modest intellect, lethargic <laughs> and financially successful only because his father's position of power gave him a head start in the business world. Certainly his marriage to Donna Bentley, who was a very beautiful woman at that time, for the time, um, would not have happened on him had he been a laborer's son rather than the scion of a banker. banker. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I just, I, I am totally loving the modest intellect, lethargic. <laughs> yeah. Um, when the Velisca murder was discovered, everyone in town asked themselves who could have done this awful thing. All in town knew of Donna's indiscretions with Joe Moore. So Albert, the cuckold husband, had become an immediate suspect. The morning of the murders, Albert was seen north of town with a Mr. McCall. Mr. McCall owned a pool hall, and shortly after the murders, he sold the pool hall and moved out of town. One theory is that Albert and Mr. McCall were meeting Mansfield or someone else to pay them for the murders. Most local citizens had their doubts that Albert could have conceived of the murder, hired a professional killer, and planned the getaway. Therefore, they felt F.F. Jones, his father, had intervened once more to pull his son's chestnuts out of the fire. I love that. That (laughs) cracks me up. I love it. In 1916, F.F. Jones sued J.N. Wilkerson for defamation of character. J.N. Wilkerson was actually hired by the Stillinger girl's father to try and find the murderer. For the damages in the sum of $60,000, which is a lot of money back then. In 1916 dollars? Yeah. The trial was heavily covered in the news and lasted over a month. The verdict was for the defendant. The jury did not believe that Wilkerson defamated Jones's character, even though Jones was affected by the belief that he has something to do with the murders. Many took this as proof of Jones's involvement in the murders. With both father and son permanently tied to the Velisca axe murders, their lives went on in a distorted fashion of normal. So normal, in fact, by the early 1930s, Albert and Donna's role in their family life had been reversed. After her year of promiscuous infidelity, Donna lived out her life as an upstanding moral woman. Meanwhile, in his middle age, Albert developed a wandering eye that fixed on a woman in Omaha. In the midst of this picadillo, Albert's lifestyle caught up with him, not giving... Not given to hard work or exercise. Yep. And uh, attracted attracted to to good good food. (laughs) The portly Albert was struck down by a massive stroke in 1934. Paralyzed and left with little speech, he lay helpless for over a year until death arrived in 1935. During this year of dying, he was occasionally driven downtown, but had minimum communication with anybody except family members. Certainly his lady love from Omaha never visited, and if she wrote, it would have been Donna, not Albert, who opened and read the letters. In a final iconic twist, the singer at his funeral was Albert Davies, who in 1911 through 1912 had been one of Donna's paramours. So, yeah, small town. Yep. <laughs> um, Albert's sad tale does not end with his death. 
Years later, a couple bought the house where Albert died. Energy was now dear, so they decided to insulate the attic. They were hardly started when they found a cache of letters behind a loose sheeting board tied with a pink ribbon. They were love letters sent to Albert by his Omaha doxy. Bound to his bed, bound yeah, bound to his bed by his failed body, Albert certainly realized he would never again climb the attic stairs, nor would he ever burn the incriminating letters, for they were forever out of his control. One uh, supposes he assumed they would always remain hidden in the attic wall, but time and the 1970s energy crisis conspired to bring them to light. There are a few secrets in a small town. Are very few secrets in a small town. So <laughs> yeah. word of the discovery soon entered Velisca's public arena. Rumors flew. Albert's journal had been found and it contained incriminating information. Albert had written a confession. When confronted with these rumors, the owners dismissed them all. They had found a packet of love letters bound with a pink ribbon sent to Albert from Omaha. They had read them and had been offended by the woman's attack on Donna, who she had called the butter and egg lady. (laughs) After reading the letters, the couple uh, thought them too personal for public knowledge, so they burned them. Damn it. I know. Those <laughs> what kind is of wrong with people? Fun to read, I mean. Oh, I'd love to read them. I know. Gosh darn it. These people destroying evidence seems to be the theme yeah. of this small town. So the next um, suspect was William Mansfield. This is the man that F.F. F. Jones had supposedly hired to murder. Um, yeah, and he he went by Blackie, Blackie Mansfield, Mansfield or Blackie Cummings, Cummings or Insane Blackie. Blackie. Believe awesome Yep. He, Mansfield's family had been killed uh, with an axe. He was suspected of other murders with axes. Employment records show that he was working many miles away at the time of the murders. He was a worker who moved around a lot. He had been in the Chicago area, born in the slums of Chicago, with a long and varied criminal history. Uh, He at one time was a boxer, Philadelphia Blackie, which is where that came from. Apparently. He had been employed as a painter, sausage case maker, butcher, brick mason, pavement maker, soldier, and sailor. Enlisted in the army and worked as a carpenter, also worked some in the Navy. Not sure how he was in both army and Navy, and uh, then deserted both. So he served Terman Leavenworth, Leavenworth for the yeah. desertion. He was arrested in Kansas City. Supposedly, he was addicted to cocaine, well known among hobos. Awesome. Mansfield had been suspect, su- suspected of murdering his wife, child, and his wife's parents. The family had been murdered with an axe, much in the same way the Moore family had been. Mansfield was arrested and tried for the murders, but a jury failed to indict him. Nice guy. Harry Whipple of Carbon. Um, He was also um, kind of associated with Mansfield. Uh, Mm -hmm. He was named in the F.F. Jones trial as conspiring to commit a murder of Joe Moore. During the trial, the sister of Whipple testified that her brother confessed to her that he was conspiring with Mansfield and F.F. Jones to commit the murders. Some believe that he is the reason that the mirrors in the house were covered. There is no evidence linking Harry Whipple to the murders. 
Um, John Van Gilder. He is the ex-husband of Sarah Moore's sister. Uh, He was seen in Villisca the day of the murders, but he has an alibi that he was in Nebraska at the time of the murders. So he was a suspect for a bit, though. Andy Sawyer. Sawyer was picked up in Creston, Iowa by Thomas Dyer, a foreman of a CB&Q bridge crew just three hours before the Moore house was entered to find the family deceased. Sawyer was a large man, dirty and wet to the knees. Thomas asked Andy if he knew how to operate a steam pile driver. He quickly learned he could not, but he was very skillful with an axe, so Thomas kept him on the crew. Andy enlivened his task by talking to the inert piles as he chopped their ends to a point, addressing them as if they were alive. He told them he was going to chop their heads off. Awesome. And this would be that Sawyer that we did the Q&A on. Yes. He was thought to be crazy by (laughs) most of his co-workers. I don't know why. (laughs) Well, he constantly muttered muttered to himself, himself. and he had funny, mean-looking eyes. Andy was excited when the crew learned of the murders. He would talk of little else. He told some members that he had been in Villisca the night of the killings. As they rode past Villisca, he pointed to the neighborhood where the murders occurred and described the route the killer took out of town. Thomas Hmm. contacted Montgomery County Sheriff Oren Jackson, suggested Andy was the murderer. Andy was interviewed but not arrested. Shortly after he returned to his home in Lark, North Dakota, he was thoroughly investigated by W.S. Gordon, who was hired by the Burns Detective Agency, and Montgomery County Attorney W.C. Ratliff. They interviewed Andy, his wife, and his father-in-law. They then retraced his itinerary during the months Andy was wandering before the murder. Sawyer seemed like a viable suspect and was mentally unbalanced, but charges were never made. Yeah, and they make all those discussions about him being a wanderer. Yes. So he really, though he had jobs, he was kind of sort of what we would consider a hobo or a vagrant. Yep. Paul Um, Mueller. Paul Mueller was a German immigrant who spoke very poor English. He was described as an itinerant lumberjack. Yes. Very powerful, fearless in his physical projection, but socially awkward, sullen and strange, and intimidating to others. He was hired farmhand uh, Francis Newton and his wife Sarah and their adopted daughter Elsie on a farm near Westbrook, West Brookfield. Brookfield. Sorry, I just read Westbrook. Okay. Uh, Massachusetts. When the parents and daughter were found hacked to death by the blunt end of the axe, all clues pointed to their hired farmhand who had disappeared suddenly. Bloodhounds had tracked his scent to the nearby railroad where he escaped. A massive manhunt ensued, but Mueller had been long gone and the case was never solved. The man on the train. Yep. So Henry Lee Moore is another uh, suspected serial killer. Uh, He was an American forger, murderer, and he was convicted of killing his mother and grandmother with an axe in their home. While in prison, it was alleged by a Justice Department agent named W.M. McClary that Moore was 
was possibly responsible for a string of murders, including uh, the Velisca Axe murders. So one of the ones he was, so the ones he was suspe- suspected of was Burnham Wayne murders, September 17th, 1911 in Colorado Springs. Henry F. Wayne, his wife and child, along with the visiting Mrs. Burnham and her two children were killed at the Wayne's home. Arthur Burnham, the husband of one of the victims, was arrested on suspicion but later released due to lack of evidence. He later did, died from tuberculosis, still protesting his innocence. The Dawson murders, October 1911 in Monmouth, Illinois. M.E. Dawson, along with his wife and daughter, were killed with an axe. Showman murders, October 1911 in Ellsworth, Kansas. Uh, William Showman, along with his wife and three children, were also killed with an axe. Hudson murders, uh, June 1912 in Paola, Kansas. Roland Hudson and his wife were killed with an axe. And then, of course, the Velisca axe murders. So, yeah, wow. McClory's theory was overblown by the contemporary media who claimed that he was stating it as fact and not speculation. An inquest was even started by police chief Berno of Colorado Springs into the Burnham Wayne murders as a man resembling Moore was seen in the city following the grisly killings but had quickly left and was never seen again. However, this was later discredited by M.F. Amrain, superintendent of the Kansas City, Kansas State Reformatory, who reported that Moore was corresponding with him at the time of the murders and that Henry was at home in Columbia. A similar inquest was also initiated by Chief, oh my gosh, I can't. Char Joy? Yeah. Mm, sure, we'll go with that. For a 1911 ex-murder that took place in Lafayette, Louisiana, although Clementine Barnabet and one of her followers were suspected of that crime, the man had already been imprisoned at the time of the killings. The result from the investigation is currently unknown, but it is presumed that it was called off. In regard to the Velisca murders, a few of the residents believe the theory. However, according to Joseph Stillinger, father of the killed Lena and Ina, claimed that more very much resembled a man that once worked for him. That man, who had given his name as Helm, was hired in April of 1912 and worked only for a week before disappearing. Stillinger and an officer later went to confront Moore in prison, but most likely the mysterious man was not Henry Lee Moore. S.A. Seward. In August of 1912, he was arrested for the murders. Once employed by Joe Moore, he was found in possession of a small axe. I couldn't find any other details about this man, so he most likely was quickly cleared at the murders. Yeah, and if he had a small axe, remember, it was a really heavy axe yeah. that killed them. That still makes me go, wow. Yeah. <laughs> have you swung an axe? <laughs> I have. Oof. John Kidwell, uh, February 1914, arrested for murders of the McAnally or McNelly family. He confessed to the murders of this family and then was explored as a suspect in the Velisca murders. In the articles I found, he used a baseball bat to murder that family, so most likely was ruled out due to a different kind of murder. Yeah, a different kind of murder weapon used. Yeah. 
Lou Van Alstein in December of 1912. He was arrested for the murders, a local farmer who said to have had an altercation with Joe Moore at one time. Supposedly told someone on a train about the murders before the news had broken. That proved to be incorrect. The train left well after the murders. He was released after a preliminary hearing due to lack of evidence. Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, this guy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Kelly. Small guy. (laughs) Very small. Only 119 pounds, and he confessed to the murders. Um, Gotta have one of those. Reverend George Kelly, the son of a minister, was born in England in 1878 and moved with his wife, Laura, to the United States in 1904. Known as the Little Minister because of his small frame... 5'2", 119 pounds, Reverend Kelly was a considered a confident, well-versed, and articulate speaker. Beyond the pulpit, however, he had a nervous demeanor, shifty eyes, and often spoke so quickly that saliva would dribble down his chin. That's a real awesome... Lovely. Yeah. Between 1904 and 1912, he preached throughout the Midwest. In May 1912, the couple relocated to Macedonia, Iowa. On the night of June 9th, the same year, he attended the Children's Day exercises in Villisca, Iowa Presbyterian Church as a guest. Kelly spent the night with the Reverend Ewing family and left the next morning on the 5.19 a.m. train bound for his home. Supposedly on this train ride, he told several people about the murders in Villisca. In 1970, he was by this time, it was known that Kelly had been convicted of sending obscene letters asking young girls to type in the nude for him, that he was a window peeper, that he had sent a bloody shirt to an Omaha laundry anonymously, and that he was obsessed with brutal murders. An elderly couple who met him on the train in 1912 also claimed that he told them of the murders before the crime had been discovered. Lena Stillinger's body had been moved and her near naked body was viewed by the killer authorities su- suspected the crime had a sexual motive kelly confessed twice to the killings while in custody but recanted before the trial began the first jury was hung and a second acquitted him he later moved to kansas city connecticut and new york city the remaining years of his life and his final resting place remain a mystery he was mentally ill spent Sometime in a mental institution in D.C., he was arrested and convicted for an ad for a stenographer asking for young women. Then when they responded to the ad, he would tell them that they were to be nude. Said it's okay. I'm a reverend. Yeah. (laughs) I love that one. Yeah. He cracks me up. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So. It. Kind of. Okay, so we're going to talk a little just freely here right, about the murders. Um, we were talking about you know, that whole that whole last piece when they were talking about Lena. Yeah. So she was 12, but she was um, often referenced as being a, a large larger girl. girl. And so she was more of a woman figure. Um, 
Now, the thing that kind of sticks with me about this whole thing is how Mrs. Moore is the only one in the house. It's truly been chopped, sliced. Yeah. Like, really sliced. Her face. Oof. I mean, the fact that there seemed to be a lot of anger towards her makes you kind of wonder, all right, so was this somebody who knew the family? Kind of seems that way, you know? And was there anger towards her? I'm kind of wondering because, you know, like her husband's having an affair. Maybe it's something to the effect of, you know, she couldn't satisfy her husband to keep him out of somebody else's bed i don't know yeah that's a whole discussion about ff um ff jones Jones and albert jones and right donna um yeah because yeah you can't keep your your woman you aren't keeping your man satisfied so i have to you're the most at fault for my failed marriage yeah whatever or i mean that whole discussion about was it a vagrant was it somebody else which kind of seems weird yeah but maybe she was just looked like the person that they hate the most it could be it could be there's many there's many things with this that's really hard you know to know and especially because lena being the one that they actually you know sort of posed at least sexually was it because Um, Yeah, I've heard tell many, many times that the act of murder can be, uh, you know, arouse one sexually. Maybe it's like, hey, this one looks the most like a woman. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) Well, and there is some debate as to if Lena was like trying to get away and perhaps um, was posed differently, maybe because she wanted to cover something. Yeah, I don't know. But the other thing that I read was that... All there was a lot of blood on the pillow, so she was most likely already dead and then moved. Right. But here's the other interesting thing is that it does appear that everybody slept through this. So yeah. were they drugged? Yeah. Was there something put in their food that night that maybe made them sleep, you know? Um yeah, how can you you know you hear any he hears stories of like a whole family being murdered and usually by the third or fourth person there's movement right but it's also a very small space though when they did the the blood splatter and now the the guy who did the blood analysis it they didn't move they didn't move so there's i mean i guess the first thing takes you out but yeah and maybe he went around and just hit them all with one swipe and then came back for more i don't know but i mean because they do think that he at least came back on sarah right because the blood had dripped in or is it not yeah it, the parents right the blood from the husband had dripped into a shoe and then, and then it turned was over. knocked over and hadn't quite congealed but right. it, had, it definitely spilled if you will when it got knocked over so it would have been a nice amount of blood can contained yes. in the shoe first yeah yeah i just it really just oh, it bugs the heck out of me that so many people traipse through the scene yes and the inquiries were so bizarrely held yes <laughs> at least the one that we read through i mean that one just still boggles my and, mind yeah and i read through like the ff jones case i actually um read through um 
the last guy, the reverend's mm-hmm. um, case. And I mean, he's, he's just a disturbed. creepy little dude, but that's the other thing. He's a little guy. And I mean, I know that when you're like charged for something, you can definitely. Yeah. I mean, the adrenaline can take you so far. Yeah. But can the adrenaline take you through eight people? Eight people, at least thirty swings on one of them, like probably pulverizing their heads. Essentially, I mean, because I mean, the two parents were more or less their their heads were gone. Yeah, that's again though where I kind of think that the attack was very severe on the parents. And it's so full of rage. Yeah. So it even almost, you know, that whole, oh, he hired somebody? Did he, though? Did he? Right. Was it him? Well, was it him? him? Could it have been Albert? Or the one guy, the blackie, who supposedly, you know, taking out extra anger against, because he had already been an axe murderer. True. I don't know. Because would you really take out that much energy on somebody that, isn't actually your personal that's what i keep going back to right. i keep going back to the personal aspect in this whole thing and even overkill is almost always a personal yes death yeah so i kind of am leaning towards not that ff jones and albert jones hired somebody but maybe did the murderers themselves right so yeah and i did some digging um on vagrants and train hoppers to try to think about you know that that whole discussion because there was um you know as i I mentioned in my one of my uh the last episode one of the little things about axe murderers there was they've determined over like a hundred years later looking in the 2000s they were looking at all these different murders that these axe murders and they happened along rail ways and could this have been one of them so um you know i had mentioned there were several actually serial killers active in the u.s at the time of those murders the paul mueller guy the the dude that was the itinerant lumberjack or whatever (laughs) he had traveled through the united states between 1898 and 1912 murdering families with axes with some similar idiosyncrasies and location. Um, This gentleman, Bill James, he wrote this book, The Man from the Train. He proposes him as the prime suspect for the Villisca Axe murders, again due to it having idiosyncrasies and the geographical patterns to the other murderers that have been attributed to Mueller. And he is possibly one of the most prolific serial killers in American history. Hmm. His German origins and timelines also make him a suspect for the Hinterkaifeck murders. That's a name for you. Ooh, I've heard about that one. Yeah, that's a good one. It is. I, I looked into it a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, I need to pull back over here. <laughs> so hear me trying to do the whole Google thingy, looking around. Can I find more about current day vagrants killing people? And um, I'd found one in particular that was focused on slayings by homeless men in public places midday in a short time span. Um, they'd picked out the murders of uh, women by homeless men. Um, there was a Melissa, Alyssa, Michelle, Alyssa Go, Sandra Shells, and Brianna Kupfer. Their deaths shine a spotlight on homelessness, violent crime, and gender-based violence. The The naming of this article actually let me down because I expected more like discussion about uh, people of color, women on men crimes, what have you. But it was just it was just one of those things where you're like, wow, this Brianna Comfer, she was just a UCLA student stabbed to death in a furniture store where she worked. Huh. 
Um, Michelle Alyssa Goh is an older woman. She was like 70, catching a train. No, Melissa isn't the old one. Uh, She was younger. She's catching a train in Times Square. And Sonda Shells, she's the older lady. She was waiting for a bus as a nurse and ended up dying at the hospital in which she worked. Sandra and and, uh, Brianna were attacked within nine hours of each other in L.A. by middle-aged African-American homeless men. The focus of the article was on violent crime in general rising. I really was um, disappointed they didn't have any stats on specific vagrant crimes. I'm... Uh, this is on my list the next time I go on vacation because, you know, my vacation from work means I get to play on this some more is going into more of those specificities about violent crimes, vagrant crimes. Um, I really want to see the gender race uh, pieces. Um, so I really think this is some serious follow up. I've seen vagrants picked out as those we need to reform the most and pull back into society to reduce violence, especially in California. There's a lot of discussion about not only allowing them in bathrooms, you know, they're just going to mess up the situation. I've heard a a lot of it, actually, some of my old friends from my military days that are currently in California. One of them was really into the discussion of homelessness and how bad it is out there and how terrible they're taking away, um, you know, monies and and you know there's there's all this structure here why can't they live within the rules but homelessness in general i mean you're just like there's a lot to go on there yeah so i started looking up vagrant murders i got a lot of the opposite violence done unto vagrants rather than likewise so is this then true reducing vagrancy could reduce violence in general whether it's not it's them performing the violent violence or on the receiving end this is why i really want to go into that So I just switched into looking at vagrancy itself, like homelessness, vagrancy, hobos. Historically, our vagrancy laws, uh, or the vagrancy laws, made it a crime for a person to wander from place to place without visible means of support. You're like, well, how could it be a crime? I can't get a job, so now I'm breaking the law. What? Basically, these laws criminalize being homeless and jobless. Historically, vagrancy laws made it a crime for a person to wander from place to place without visible means of support. So it's the condition of homelessness. Vagrancy itself is the condition of homelessness without regular employment or income. Vagrants are also known as vagabonds, rogues, tramps, or drifters. They usually live in poverty and support themselves by begging, scavenging, petty theft, temporary work, or social security where it's available. Historically, vagrancy in the Western societies was associated with petty crime, begging and lawlessness, and punishable by law with forced labor, military service, imprisonment, or confinement to dedicated labor houses. So both vagrant and vagabond ultimately derive from Latin word vagari, meaning to wander. The term vagabond is derived from Latin vagabundus. In Middle English, vagabond originally denoted a person without a home or employment. So they've been historically characterized as outsiders in settled, ordered communities. They are the embodiment of otherness, objects of scorn or mistrust, or worthy recipients of help and charity, one or the other. It's very yin-yang strange. Um, Some ancient sources show vagrants as passive objects of pity who deserve generosity and the gift of alms. Others show them as subversives or outlaws, which make them a parasitical living through theft, fear, and threats. Um, you know, fairy tales in medieval Europe have beggars cast curses on anyone who is insulting or stingy towards them. 
in Tudor England, some of those who begged door to door for milk, yeast, drink, pottage were thought to be wit witches. So, and many world religions, both in history and today, have vagrant traditions or make reference to vagrants. In Christianity, Jesus is shown in the Bible as having compassion for better beggars, prostitutes, and the disenfranchised. The Catholic Church also teaches compassion for people living in vagrancy. Vagrant lifestyles are seen in Christian movements such as the mendicant orders. Many still exist in places like Europe, Africa, and Near East, as preserved by Gnosticism, hesychasm, and other various esoteric practices. Now, this is where it's kind of different. In East Asian and South Asian countries, a condition of vagrancy has long been historically associated with the religious life, as described in the relig religious literature of Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, and Muslim Sufri Sufi traditions. Examples include sadhus, der dervishes, bhikkhus, and Sramanic traditions generally. So, the othering of homeless, I would say, is a very Western thing. In Finland and Sweden, vagrants were sentenced into forced labor or military service. In Russia, you were exiled to Siberia. Um, the first major vagrancy law in England and Wales was the Ordinance of Laborers in 1349. England is freaking brutal to the homeless. The Vagabonds Act of 1572, passed under Elizabeth I, divined, defined a rogue as a person who had no land, no master, and no legitimate trade or source of income. It included rogues in the class of vagrants and vagabonds. If a person were apprehended as a rogue, he would be stripped to the waist, whipped until bleeding, and a hole about the compass of an inch about would be burned through the cartilage of his right ear with a hot iron. Ow. I mean... <laughs> This is why I said, this is brutal. A rogue who is charged with a second offense, unless taken in by someone who would give him work for a year, could face execution as a felony. Wow. A rogue charged with a third offense would only escape death if someone hired him for two years. She's like, holy mackerel. So the colonists imported British vacancy laws when they settled in North America. Through the colonial and early national periods, vagrancy laws were used to pub to police the mobility and economic activities of the poor. People experiencing homelessness and ethnic minorities were especially vulnerable to arrest as a vagrant. Thousands of inhabitants of colonial and early national America were incarcerated for vagrancy, usually for terms of 30 to 60 days, but occasionally longer. And after the American Civil War, some southern states, you know, they, when the Black Codes and uh, Jim Crow laws were passed, the laws tried to control the hundreds of and thousands of freed slaves. In 1866, the state of Virginia, fearing that it would be overrun with dissolute and abandoned characters, passed an act providing for the punishment of vagrants. So that whole, that little side note that was made in all of this looking at Villisca and after the murders, all the black people run out of town. Mm -hmm. So, and, and the, could it be a vagrant on a train? I think it really does go to, we don't expect it to be somebody we know and we like. Yeah. We really don't want it to be somebody that we know and like. Right. So we have to blame it on the others. Yeah. So there you go with that. And, and then the squirrely, creepy um, minister would also be <laughs> a good oh he was an out-of-towner he didn't live in town and he's creepy he's creepy but yeah the the vagrancy thing I, i'm gonna be doing some more that and the whole axe murder thing other than the 
known axe murderers that we have out there. Because I found lists and lists and lists of axe murderers. And you're like, okay, um, what are the stats on that? Oh, you want stats? The heck is that? So now with talking about Velisca Axe Murder House, you have to talk about the hauntings because that's kind of why people go there now is to ghost hunt. It is known for the ghost hunting. Um, So the townspeople thought Velisca meant a pretty place, but when translated by Native Americans, it means evil spirit. Really good name to name your town. Yes. Awesome. So you can watch... Um, videos online if you YouTube Velisca Axe Murders and I went through quite a few of them Um, some of them were pretty interesting you can see flashlights turning off and on objects moving the door in the children's room opening and closing EVPs have been captured orbs seem to be prevalent Mm. Um, several paranormal groups have investigated the house including ghost adventures kindred spirits black raven paranormal to name a few Uh, in 2015 a man stabbed himself while inside the house claims it was not him something made him do it i actually saw a kindred spirits episode where they talked to him and i will have to say it was pretty compelling i did not get a sense he was making this up uh, he may he you know whatever right. you believe it, <laughs> it was interesting he was very convincing we'll yes. say um and a lot of people have used ouija boards in the house don't use ouija boards it's <laughs> ouija boards are weird it, it there's a lot of belief that it can open portals that it can do things that it's kind of like one of those things. I may not necessarily believe in this thing, but let's just leave that thing out of it. We don't need to cause, you know, the end of the world. We've, we've got enough bad things going on around here. Yep. Uh, many people believe the spirit of the killer or an evil precedence, presence still resides in the house. So now I will talk a little bit about my experience in the house because I actually, well, kind of. I remember when you went yeah. there. Yeah. We both were living in Omaha, wasn't it? Yep. Yep. I was living in Omaha. I was actually in a documentary. And um, so I went out there. I was actually when I was with my ex-husband, but that doesn't really matter. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Um, It was a different time. Yes. And so the house at the time, and actually is still owned by a man named Darwin, although Darwin has since passed away. Um, And when we went in, initially you went through a tour of the house and he kind of told what happened in the house. Um, Some of the things he told were a little off of what I discovered. discovered, Right. Um, But I do think that part of his talk was maybe hiding some of the murky past like the bacon (laughs) yeah i mean it's just kind of and i'm sitting here thinking that much bacon what do you have like half a freaking pig but um i will say when you go into the house there there is no running water there is no electricity the house is like it probably would have been in 1912 they they removed all of that um they were they wanted the house to be as original 
as it was as possible. Um, and they had a lot of period pieces, although none that actually belonged to the Moors, because obviously right. that was all taken. either taken or destroyed. Um, so the house has a very heavy feeling. It's uh, like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. It just had a this like really just heavy and I don't know if it's because such a sad thing happened there if it's because so many people have been through the house since that time or I mean it had really low ceilings and it might be a little claustrophobic true it it definitely is a very small house it's right it's not a very large house and even imagining six people living in that house is hard yeah well there was one bedroom for the kids or two if you Two, technically, right. yeah. One on the main floor. So three bedrooms. One upstairs. And, like, the parents' bedroom, so you walk up to the top of the stairs, and there's no door. It's just open. So you're just walking directly into the parents' room. In the parents' room, there's a tiny little closet and then a big attic. Um, you could probably, They probably could have taken that attic and made another bedroom because right. it was a big room. But it was also very creepy. You know, if you've ever seen the Amityville house, mm-hmm. um, it's got the windows. Oh, the that, Amityville windows. Yes. And I, I kind of cracked up as I was watching one of the uh, one of the shows. I think it was even the Kindred Spirits one. And the guy was like, yeah, don't ever buy a house with the Amityville windows in it. It's just, just don't no, do it. It's just not good. <laughs> They're uh, so pretty, though. They are pretty, <laughs> but it's creepy, too. It definitely adds to the creep factor. Well, I mean, the fact that you've got a couple of houses where families were murdered with those pretty windows, I guess we just have to go no to those windows. Yes. Um, So then when we went into the children's bedroom, I don't know why the children's bedroom really freaked me out. I I just didn't like the feeling in there. I didn't want to be in there. And um, I did notice like the the closet door in that room kept moving and that kind of I don't know it was just kind of weird could have been a draft whatever but it freaked me out and of course that was the room that they put me in first of course all alone (laughs) and so I'm sitting in there I'm kind of freaking out I you know there's I'm in a room alone it's a room that people were murdered in I'm freaking out and (laughs) I, at one point, I was sitting on the floor, and then I stood up, and the door slammed, and I screamed, and I ran out of the house. Missy's like, we're done. Thank you. Bye. (laughs) Yeah. I was just kind of like, I don't want to be in here anymore. Um, I did attempt to go back into the house one more time, and when I was in there, there were noises coming from behind us. And they actually let me sit in a room with the other girl who was in the house. But it just was too much for me. I just could have went, nope, I'm, <laughs> nope. Mm-mm. So I spent the night sleeping in the truck. Well, you know, that, that'd be me. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. I just um don't the only time I do remember myself for my own little haunting story, if you will, when my when I was in seventh grade, my mom worked in Springfield, Illinois, in this beautiful mansion that was turned into an in-resident um, location for um, drug abuse, drug abusers. And the director's office, it was so beautiful. It was like, uh, 
the staircase reminded me of like Seven Oaks and Gone with the Wind. Mm. So there was one big staircase that went up and in the port cochets, so there was an office on that over the, the drive through for the buggies and then the stairs went Ooh, on. Pretty. So, but that, that office was beautiful, had gorgeous stained glass window on the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was sitting there one day and um, I was in that room and I don't remember why I was sitting up there, but I was just sitting there, I was reading a book and one of the phones rang and I swear to God, I saw the phone just ever so slightly pick up and hang up on whoever was calling. I'm like, <laughs> I am never sleeping or never setting foot in this room again. I don't care how pretty that stained glass window is. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so uh, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily say I believe in hauntings, but at the same time, there's just weird stuff that we mm-hmm. can't um, explain. explain. Yeah. And I definitely... Um... I don't know. I've had a few other experiences in life where I kind of went, uh, I, I mean, know. I've had the, the, you know, that chill and I listen to it. Yeah. So if I get a chill in my neck, it's like, okay, there is a reason I'm picking up on something that either I don't, I'm not seeing, but my, my eyes are taking it in. Yep. I'm not noticing it, but something in my brain says you should be scared about that thing. Yeah. And I go, okay, I'm going to listen. This is a thing I need to leave. Well, and that's kind of how it was in the Velisco house for me. I, I don't just care like, if somebody slammed a door downstairs. I, I'm done. So, what? Yeah, I don't think I. No, I mean, I actually saw the door slam. So right. that kind of freaked me out. I mean, you're like, I'm done. Yeah. And then the second time going in, I, I really tried and I just went, I'm. I don't know. I, I mean, can't once do this. you're already in that heightened awareness, yeah. I, I would mean there are times i've been afraid in the past that i just didn't know why i was afraid and i needed to go somewhere where i felt safe Mm -hmm. and if you didn't feel safe in that house why would you stay yeah (laughs) it sounds like a nope yeah that was just a yeah no thank you and um the other people did stay in the house the one thing i will say is that everybody left around 6 a.m and that's a common theme in that house. Not many people stay in past 6 a.m. And they think that's possibly when the murderer left the house. They There's like something in... It, and it's just interesting because even watching some of the documentaries and stuff, people were it's leaving. Yeah, it is a theme. And it's, you know, it's not an intentional theme. Nobody's, you know, sitting there looking at their watch going, ooh, it's 6 a.m. I got to get out of here. It's... <laughs> No, I mean, like, people are dead asleep, wake up, and leave the house. So, mm-hmm. it's just kind of interesting. Um, yeah, there's plenty of um, discussions about hauntings out there. And that's, I'd looked up, I got the Google machine going again and checking out what's on Wikipedia. I looked up hauntings, found a list of reportedly haunted locations, and that list had over 136 annotations. That's a reduced list because it was multiple countries, because it was global. Mm-hmm. Multiple countries that simply referred to a Wikipedia link for that country. And then when you go down into the individual countries, some of them, their states or counties or what have you, however they're spread out, even their annotations had a single annotation for their own, mm. if you will, because I looked at the U.S., and um yeah some of those states they were like and see this listing about you're like holy crap how many people were how many haunted places are in this state yeah massachusetts i think was one of them they're just like let's just look at this like but of all things there was 180 citations for us and surprisingly they didn't actually have Velisca. they only had one iowa link and i've of course forgotten it you're like 
Wow. Wikipedia, I think we're going to have to add to your list. Yeah. What the heck, man? You were incorrect there. (laughs) (laughs) And I ran across some articles about American fascination with ghosts and hauntings, because it is a good question. And Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just Americans, but why are we so fascinated by ghosts? Is it because they represent a form of immortality, making them a reflection of our pervasive fear of death? Or do they serve as a convenient bridge to the afterlife, providing some comfort that our loved ones are not truly gone forever? Whatever the answers are to such questions, there is no doubt that ghosts have occupied a prominent place within the cultural zeitgeist. For the past few decades, ghosts have shown up frequently in films, TV shows, and books. Polls have revealed that many Americans believe they are entirely real. Although much scarier ghosts can be found in other movies in the 80s, like The Shining, Beetlejuice, and the three Poltergeist films, and the five Nightmare on Elm Street films, no one could arguably match Ghostbusters for its sequel of generating awareness of the supernatural phenomena. Released in June 1984, It Took America by a Storm was the number one movie at the box office for seven consecutive weeks when it was bumped by Prince's Purple Rain. (laughs) Um, although the movie is obviously fictional, Dan Aykroyd, the originator of the Ghostbusters concept, was actually quite the supernaturalist, and still is, I'm presuming, because he's still with us. Um, besides collecting ghost stories and knowing the hot spots for spooks in New York City, like St. Mark's Church and Apartment 77 of the Dakota, Aykroyd was a member of the American Society for Psych- uh, Psychical Re- research i'm not sure that doesn't look like real word and would occasionally be found reading up on the subject at the society's library on west 73rd street meeting george bush at one of his movie screenings he told the president-elect to call me if there was any trouble at the white house with the ghost of mary todd lincoln another indication he knew his supernatural stuff Aykroyd is one of many americans who believe that ghosts are not just hollywood conceit According to a national public opinion poll commissioned by Parents Magazine in 1989, Americans are a nation of believers in supernatural phenomena, the magazine flatly stated. About 65% of those polled subscribe to at least one of nine beliefs regarding the paranormal, ranging from the ability to consistently predict the future, 34%, the notion that quartz and other crystals could increase one's mental and physical abilities, 8%, A full third of Americans believe that there were spirits or ghosts that made their presence known to people, and one-fourth believe that certain people had mental or psychic powers to bend spoons and make objects move. Ghosts were also visible or invisible presidents in American popular culture in the late 90s and aughts. Not surprising, given that one in three believed they were uh, real, up from one in four in 1990. According to 2005 Gallup survey, what is it with the dearly departed? Asking People magazine in 2005, noting that it seems they're everywhere lately. Indeed, hugely pop- popular novelists such as Stephen King, Dean Koontz, and Anne Rice were going to town with ghosts. Their version's a lot scarier than the ones we thought might be in our own attics. Movies, too, are infested with spirits, the, with restless dead boyfriends, a genre unto its own. City of Angels, for example, was a film that wants desperately to outdo Ghost and Titanic and the love from beyond the grave movie sweepstakes, hmm. <laughs> wrote Stephen Holden of the New York Times, thinking the 1997 melodrama mined our obsession with the other side for all it was worth. Then The Sixth Sense in 1999 was a smash hit, its bigger influence propelling the careers of mediums famous and non-famous alike. In the film, a nine-year-old famously states, I see dead people. 
and then the twist ending making it the stuff of water cooler talk for some time so now that just there were a couple different things about that i was like it's interesting we are fascinated obviously oh, yeah with well, and even more recently if you think of all the conjuring movies right? and things dealing movies. with ed and lorraine warren and mm-hmm. some of their investigations so yeah there's and obviously us podcasting oh um, yeah not that we're necessarily sticking to the supernatural part but with the murder part and a random that I'm going to see if I can find anything on it. There was one day in my life back when I was in the military in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, where I and another young lady were um, called by Air Force Office of Special Investigations to help with a murder in Lincoln, Nebraska. There was a really large influx of Yazidi and other Iraqi um, immigrants and one man who worked in the, the details that I can remember, because I, I was there to help translate the um, the wife of the then um, pre- prime suspect. Um, he didn't want any men interviewing her. So mm-hmm. me and this other lady, we were there to help translate. And I remember the officer was so cool. She just totally reminded me of Mariska Hardigay, and she was pretty badass. But um, going through and doing the translating for her. But the the gentleman who was killed, the idea was he worked for like uh, a local, um, I don't think it was a Y, but another like community center type thing. And he was helping the families, uh, most notably the wives and kids, get situated, learn their rights within the U.S. And the thought was that a bunch of the husbands got pissed. And he was literally um, hacked with an axe. Really gross. Um, I'm very grateful. That's one time I saw black and white pictures versus color. Because, you know, I can watch this stuff left, right, and backwards and forwards in movies and TV. Because you you know there's an element of not real. Even when they're giving true stories. Because right. you're watching something that you know has been videoed. Mm-hmm. Um, and But that the realism of actually seeing this is a person who left this earth not that long ago. Probably because a bunch of... Um, men were upset with him helping their families maybe leave them yeah so well uh i hope that you enjoyed my my pick (laughs) villisca axe murders of course and uh Thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do happen and small towns are not the quiet, quaint places you think they are. They might lust for looking at crime scenes. Oh, sorry. I'm still (laughs) stuck on that. hundred or so people just went traipsing through the tent house. Awesome. Um, You can check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town. Our Instagram username pro- profile is nothing, nothing happens in a small town. Our Twitter username pro- and profile is nothing, nothing happens in a small town at N-H-I-A-S-T. And our Facebook page is nothing, nothing happens in a small town at N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. Our Gmail is nothing happens in a small town at gmail.com. And if you have a suggestion, 
feel free to send it to us. If you haven't noticed, we actually do them. Yes. So. <laughs> I mean, our suggestions that we've got lined up are going to take us for a while here. It's yeah. nice. Because yeah. actually, even though the next, uh, I'd say that one of the ones that's coming up, it's mine because I'm so interested in it. But I did hear of it from Elise. So Elise, shout out to you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.